the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, broken mirrors leap back together in string dimension 15 undulation, but now all the actual things they are reflected are broken or look not quite right. Worn out snubs of smoky days ditch the pathos and shout a pugilistic warning. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Bain Intern Charlie Smith. Hi, Charlie. This time we talk with Travis S. Taylor, scientist, TV personality, and author of exciting fiction. Travis discusses Bringers of Hell, the sixth entry in the Tossetti Agenda series out now from booksellers. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Leiden Universe novels, Alliance of Equals. First, here's the news. Hey, the February hardcovers looked out and saw their shadows, but they were too dang powerful and great to go back into their nest. Uh, that's because it's Groundhog's Day today, by the way. It's hatching time also for the February hardcovers. Out now in hardcover is Bringers of Hell which, as we said, is the sixth entry in the Tossetti Agenda by Travis S. Taylor. Why don't you tell us about that, Charlie? Despite unprecedented victories on the part of humanity, the war with the alien Kiata horde drags on. The Kiata may be bewildered by the cunning tenacity of General Alexander Moore and the men and women who fight at his side, but they have no intention of beating a hasty retreat. In fact, intelligence suggests that the Kiata invasion is at hand and with numbers sure to overwhelm humankind. Meanwhile, mech-suited marine warrior Deanne Moore wages a personal war on the Kiata. Grievously wounded in the battle for Thagreet and rebuilt with state-of-the-art cybernetics, she leads a strike force known as the Bringers of Hell. Dee is now Phoenix, reborn as an implacable scourge to the Kiata, and nothing will stand in the way of her mission, to make the aliens pay. We will hear even more on Bringers of Hell with Travis shortly, also out in February is 1637 The Volga Rules by Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorg Huff. Tell us about that one, Charlie. It's been five years since the cosmic incident known as the Ring of Fire transported the modern-day town of Grantville, West Virginia, through time and space to 17th century Europe. The course of world history has been forever altered, and Mother Russia is no exception. Inspired by the American uptimer's radical notion that all people are created equal, Russian serfs are rebelling. The entire village of Poltz, led by blacksmith Stefan Androvich, picks up stakes to make a run for freedom. The path is dangerous, for the serfs as well as the Tsar. But the worst threat are those in the aristocracy who seek to crush the serfs and execute the Tsar in a bid to drive any hope for Russian freedom under their Parisian-crafted boot heels. But the Russians of 1637 have taken inspiration from their uptimer counterparts. And it could be that a new wind of liberty is about to blow three centuries early and change Mother Russia forever. Bringers of Hell by Travis S. Taylor, and 1637, The Volga Rules by Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorg Huff are now at booksellers everywhere. One welcome, Travis S. Taylor, Ph.D., to the podcast. Hello, Travis, and lots of other letters, too, after your name. Hi, Travis. Hey, how's it going? Uh, Travis S. Taylor is the uh, co-creator and star of the National Geographic's uh, hit series that was called The Rocket City Rednecks. Uh, he can be seen on the Weather Channel's uh, Three Scientists Walk Into a Bar. Um, and I want you to tell me about any other TV projects you have in a moment. Let me just, uh, Travis, is a phys- Travis is a physicist who has worked on various programs for the Department of Defense and NASA for the past 20 years. His expertise includes advanced propulsion concepts, very large space telescopes, space-based beamed energy systems, cool, future combat technologies, and next-generation space launch concepts. Travis is the author of the groundbreaking Warp Speed series with entries Warp Speed and the Quantum Connection. He's also the creator of the Talchetti Agenda series, including One Good Soldier, the Talchetti Agenda, Talchetti Agenda. One Day on Mars, Trail of Evil, Kill Before Dying, and now at Booksellers Everywhere, the latest entry in that series is Bringers of Hell. Um, 
but Travis, are you doing any TV at the moment? What's going on with the with your uh, your photogenic career? Yeah, well, uh, so you can see me on several uh, Ancient Aliens episodes that will be coming up soon. In fact, I'm going to film three more of them here in a couple of weeks. And I just finished a new show for the History Channel that's going to start airing in March. Can't tell you the title of it yet because they made me sign all kind of agreements and stuff. And there's a uh, competitive program out there on a different channel. So, but they'll start advertising for it within the next few weeks, and and we'll see it soon. Okay, well that sounds cool. So this is the one that we still can't know the title of. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, but it has something. It's it's gonna be on the History Channel. That'll be great. Uh, we'll be looking forward to tying in all your books and promoting with that. <laughs> as much as we can as well. Um, so uh, in Bringers of Hell, Travis, we are a long way away from uh, the beginning of this series and even of Trail of Evil. Um, can you kind of tell us where we are as the book begins? We are a long way into the story now. Yeah, so the whole series started way back when uh, little Deanna Moore was, I'm trying to remember, she was like six or eight years old. And uh, we move forward on into the future now, and she's pushing 30. I mean, she's like in her upper 20s uh, at this point. And, you know, in this, in this uh, universe, they're not supposed to be able to uh, volunteer for combat duty until they're 26 years old. And uh, and without consent of their parents, and and she became a, a pilot right out of uh, the cadet, out of out of being a, a fresh, uh, fresh out of uh, marine combat training, and and she's been involved in combat pretty much since she was she was a little girl because uh, the very first uh, uh, battle she saw, she was on vacation on Mars, and that's when. Uh, all hell break broke loose in in this uh, solar in the United States of the solar system. Uh, like uh, it's three hundred years in the future from now. So at this point, we're on up, and she's a, a grown woman, uh, and a lot has happened. The uh, without too many spoilers in there, suffice it to say, there's a pending alien invasion coming, and the aliens uh, have pretty much destroyed. Uh, the man she loves and the and and her closest friend, and she's decided that she is going to bring hell to every one of those aliens and kill every one of them herself. Yeah, this is uh, in a lot of ways. This is just a, a D. Moore's um, story. Um, she's a great character in it. Um, and before we go any farther, maybe I should mention also that um, we have a great. Uh, sort of adjunct story that's about Deanna Moore on the Bain website right now that's called um, Pain is the Fuel, right? Um, where we get a lot of insight into into what's, what's making D. Moore tick. Yeah, right. I, I really, really like writing Deanna. Uh, the Moores, it, 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 all the characters in this series that have survived <laughs> all six books, they, they've been so much fun to write and the ones that had to die I hated some of them were so so amazing I hated killing them off but uh, yeah at the end of uh, Kill Before Dying uh, Deanna was sort of becoming who she was going to be uh, in, in Bringers of Hell she was completely distraught completely depressed post-traumatic stress syndrome she I mean she'd lost everything and uh, her her mentor and uh, wingman uh, uh, Jack Boland, Jack Deathray Boland, well, Deathray told her that she didn't have time to be sad. It was time to be angry because they were going to go out there and they were going to kill uh, every one of those aliens before they had before dying. And uh, and so, Bringers of Hell is is her taking on that persona of the person of the demon. That's go, uh, for these aliens, and she is literally going to bring them hell. So, what happened to uh, what happened to her, and what happened on the Greet? I get, that was what was going on in in the previous book, right? Yeah, the, the Greet. Yeah, I noticed you guys have left an H off. It's three the Greet, uh, like like tooth, but it's to, it's, uh, 
the Greece. Anyway, the Greece that wasn't the planet. The Greece were on all sorts of planets. They were just on a planet that the Greece had lived on. And when the Kiata alien horde had come through, it's just sheer numbers. They decided it's no longer worth staying and fighting them for that planet, and they left. But they had left um, some of their technology on that planet behind in their ruins, in their city ruins. And uh, that was one of the reasons, well, that was the reason that humanity had gone there was to try and get some kind of secret weapon to fight the uh, uh, the alien horde, the Kiata horde, and who are way outnumber humanity, and the technology is beyond humanity. Imagine humanity fighting a bunch of supermen, you know, I mean, it's, it's that bad. Although these are mean, ugly-looking aliens that they're, they're, they glow and all sorts of crazy stuff. They look like demons. Anyway, uh, during that battle, Deanna got shot down uh, on a extreme forested region of, the, of a planet that was basically uninhabited. It was just swarming with the Kiata, and she ended up going toe-to-toe, fighting the Kiata hand-to-hand for the better part of, uh, of this mission by herself, uh, you know, many on one in, in a bunch of cases, and and literally in the end, uh, she fought off about six Kiata, but they ended up almost killing her and paralyzing her, uh, but she managed to have her suit walk her into the ruins, and she discovered a way to communicate with the, the grief. They weren't dead. They had just moved away, and they gave her a gift, which was basically uh, technology that, that was a Kiata killer, and it was just a little pet, like a little beetle, uh, you know, only, say, the size of maybe your cell phone or your fist, but not much bigger than that. And it's her pet that she carries around with her, and it uh, helps her in times of need. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's talk about the uh, the technology a little bit as well, um, because you do cool technology. Um, this warfare, this quantum tech, it feels like real science, real possible weapons and tactics in the future. Um, they they. It, it's different than a lot of you know just space battles you you might see or read because they can they have they have real science they're relying on and it changes the way they they behave and the the sorts of fighting they do right yeah that right it took me i developed a complete uh set of uh combat skills and tactics i watched a lot of uh um dogfight documentaries and naval battle documentaries and hand-to-hand infantry-type uh, documentaries to, to study a lot about uh, combat tactics. And then thought, well, now, okay, if you could create a technology where your fighter plane was a lot like an electron, where you could cause it to be location to be uncertain, so it would be bouncing around in location, you know, jumping in and out of real space uh, about a particular trajectory. It would make it extremely difficult to target. And if you learned how to uh, use that as a strategy and a tactic, then you would make you an overwhelming force with a small number of these fighters against, you know, huge numbers of normal type uh, fighters. This is what you'd call a force multiplier in military jargon. And that's what I had to do. I was thinking about because this is an ultimate asymmetry war, asymmetric war where humanity is so outnumbered by, you know, an order of millions to one. And so they have to figure out a way to create huge force multipliers in order to make a dent in this invasion. So you imagine your wingman and you are flying along a particular trajectory path and you're bouncing in and out of reality space, appearing, you know, a kilometer to your left, three kilometers behind you one second, seven kilometers in front of you another second, and all the while moving at velocities that are beyond orbital velocity of a planet. So uh, imagine what that would take, uh, the, the, the skill, 
the physical abilities, the mental faculties, and emotional control that these pilots would have to be able to handle. Yeah. And the 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 constantly being in one place and then in another, and the possibility that you can you can leave when things get get hairy, but you don't want to leave too soon. An evacuation technique certainly they can flash out uh, and go back to the mothership, or as long as they've been to the place previously they can snap back as i call it that's the technology it's called sling forward and snap back you can sling forward so far based on how powerful your transmitter is and then you can snap back to anywhere you've been and uh that that you've you know, recorded the location in your uh quantum uh, teleportation device and all of this is so I mean, if you realize that your fighter plane is about to get it destroyed and you're they, they've got your number if you have time to snap back then you would you know to the hangar bay of your your you know carrier ship your super carrier then you, you know you could jump in another fighter and get back in the mix and all of this is not just not just magic you're you're pulling out of your your hat this is extrapolation based on science we know right now right yes yes everything is based on the concept of quantum entanglement and uh, quantum teleportation which has been demonstrated in a laboratory with beams of light they they we've actually I've done an experiment myself where we've we've transported pieces of light from one side of a room all the way to the other side of the room instantaneously. And uh, that's the idea here is 300 years in the future, I'm extrapolating that we've learned how to do that now with uh, uh, material objects. And in fact, um, humanity actually didn't do it 300 years in the future. They had a little help from uh, an alien that was a million years older. And and, and so you can see that, uh, you know, you can use the old cliche that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I say it the other way around. I say there's no such thing as magic. They're just indistinguishable. They're just uh, sufficiently advanced technologies. Hmm. An- another technology, that one of the cool uh, parts of the book, are the mecha suits. Uh, and you have actually built a homemade mecha suit. I know because I saw you do it on TV. Um <laughs> What are these things? What can these things do? Yeah, well, the uh, so they have uh, armored infantry, uh, the armored environmental suit marines. They each wear um, armored, uh, uh, force-enhancing, strength-enhancing, speed-enhancing, weapons-equipped and sensors-equipped suits uh, that would make Iron Man jealous. And they also... As the, as each book progressed, there were six years or so between each of the books in the series. So 36 years to the first book, uh, then we're at uh, a technology, the suits are even better. They uh, actually have developed a personal shield uh, technology that they've reverse engineered from the Kiata. And so they actually have shields on their armor suits that will withstand significant hits until their power runs out, and then then they're just down to pure old metal armor, you know. But it's uh, futuristic metal alloys that we don't know how to make today. Uh, but they could be lightweight. You can imagine in 300 years we'll know how to make plastic-type materials that are as light as plastic but would stop a 50-caliber bullet pretty easily. Uh, just based on new engineering techniques, we'll learn as we get smarter. Yeah. Now, the suits allow them to jump, you know, leaps, uh, maybe half a kilometer at a time, to move faster. They have grenade launchers, rocket launchers. They have a, uh, their left arm has a huge um, uh, monomolecular blade that comes out of it they can use in hand-to-hand. Then the right arm has guns. Uh, they have a, a gun that pops out that's uh, uh, it's a hyper-velocity uh, automatic rifle meaning that it's a, basically a little mini rail gun that's uh, shooting rounds at, you know, near the speed of light. And when they fire them automatically, it creates ion trails through the air if they're in, in an atmosphere. And they're armor-piercing rounds because the aliens have shields and have armor as well. Then their helmets have um, visors uh, that have various sensors and so on in it. But the biggest, coolest technology, I think, that I use in this whole series 
is what I call the direct to mind. And they don't need screens or buttons. They they have a direct to mind link. So they everything is displayed just in their mind around them and in front of them as if they're looking at it, they can see it, and they can communicate direct to mind through quantum connectivity with the sensor. It's a little computer uh counterpart that each of them have in their in their head, this little implant about the size of a sunflower seed. And it's a supercomputer in there that's an artificial intelligence that's connected to everything else through the quantum uh, links they have. And with that, if they say, I need to simulate this battle, then instantly the battle appears around them that they see it in their mind, and they can tweak it and move it around and do simulations at super uh, quantum computing levels. So imagine instantaneously how much problem solving every one of these Marines can do, every one of these soldiers can do at this time frame in the future. And and to think that a force like that is outnumbered and is outgunned makes you really put in perspective how powerful an alien civilization that's been around for a million years might actually be. Yeah. Well, the... Well, I, I, this maybe it's a good time to talk about the the Kiata. Um, why are they so nasty? What are, why are they why are they so mean to us? What do they want? Oh, it's not that they're mean to us. Uh, imagine them like uh, fire ants, but they're they're an aggressive, uh, extremely rapidly populating species, and so they are continually moving outward in a population expansion wave. And it's just they've come to this part of the galaxy because they need the real estate. And they don't care about whoever's there. They use the real estate for resources or for a place to live, whichever is most suitable for them. And we just happen to be in the path. So they're they're just sort of genetically or or, or they're built as aggressive organisms. Yes, however, I never go through how they came about. Uh, I'm assuming this, they're in their natural state. They are just, uh, they started out, um, you know, millions of years ago, uh, overpopulated their planet, moved out through their solar system, moved on to their next star system, kept continuing to populate star systems and spreading out. And, and, and then when they finally started bumping into other civilizations and meeting resistance, they just would overpower them with numbers and take what they wanted. They have no particular morals uh, other than, uh, you know, a big stick. Yeah. If um, So, all right, at the beginning of the story, uh, we have Alexander Moore, who's, who's also a continuing character. Um, we got Deanna, and she's going to, She's going to be our stick, um, humanity stick, in a way. Um, who uh, Alexander Moore's come a long way as a character. Um, let's let's talk a little bit more about the characterization. I guess who who, who is he now? Who was he? Who is he now? Um, he's he's really become the the hope. Moore really is my main character of this book. He really is. There, you know, there are a couple of main characters and characters that have stayed in there forever. But Alexander Moore was the first character I envisioned for this story, mm-hmm. and he was a senator from Mississippi, and he was going to a summit meeting on Mars to meet with the Martian separatists. Now, Mars is just another state in the Union, and there are cities, city states, sort of on Mars, and and. These Martian separatists had been well, had been in a civil war. Mars wanted to be a free planet for, for for decades, actually a century or so. And Moore, before he became a senator, was a major in the U.S. Marines and fought in the first Martian separatist attempt. Now we only talk about that a little bit uh, as backflashes, and you know one day it might be cool to go back and write more story. Uh, during that that the what I called the Martian Desert campaigns. So anyway, the very first day that Moore takes his wife and daughter to Mars, sort of as a working vacation to go to the summit, the 
leader of the Martian separatist, El Ami, decides that that's the day to, to perform an exodus and take all of her uh, would-be followers and vanish from the soul system. But they do that by having a few, you know, tens of thousands of them sacrifice themselves as an invading army into the biggest city on Mars, which was Mons City, that's around Olympus Mons, which is really the size of Arizona. So you can imagine how big the city is. Hmm. And so anyway, Moore gets caught up, and his family, uh, they get caught up during this, and they fight their way to safety, and in the end, Moore decides that uh, he could do more as a president than he could as a senator to stop this kind of stuff from happening again. So he decides to be to run for office and gets elected in the following books. The next two books, he's president more. And at the end of the third book, you think that it's all done with, and it's all just been humanity's unrest and civil uh, uh, civil war going on. But it turns out it was all it was all a plan by the uh, the leader of the the separatists. And uh, I hate giving too many spoilers away in, in, in interviews like this, but it turns out it was all necessary in order to prepare humanity for the oncoming alien invasion. Mm-hmm. And more since he's already done his terms as president, uh, he goes to the now president and says, "There's an invasion coming. I want to lead it." And the president makes him, uh, you know, uh, a, a five-star uh, general in charge of the expeditionary forces to go and stop the incoming invasion, the oncoming invasion. Yeah. Now, what is his? Uh, he he's got this uh, the um, sort of dichotomy. He's dad to Deanna, who's who's also one of his best assets, and she's commanding this. Uh, she ends up at the, the David Rackman. Uh, pilot yeah and um sending her into the hot spots he's he's the dad that is worried about her but he's also somebody who has to do that right when it when the time comes yeah and and i i kind of modeled him after some other presidents and great generals uh, of our history that who had sons uh that had that were that went to war you know uh their sons went to war during world war ii during Vietnam, you know, all these types of things. And, and he's not the type who would pull strings to keep his daughter out of combat if she wanted to go to combat. Uh, and, and, and it turned out, though, she was just, Deanna was just so good at it that, uh, that you know, she, she, like you said, is the stick. And you, you always, you have to, if you go in a ball game, you play your best athlete. Yeah. Even if it's your child and... <laughs> <laughs> type of, of turmoil this puts Alexander and his wife through. Yeah, yeah, which is you know the fun of the book for us, but not for him. So, you, um, what what's going to happen if we win? Um, where where can you? First of all, is Deanna going to be able to adapt to peace? To peace, is that you know is Alexander going to be able to do that? Um, and and what what might lie ahead with this technology? Well, so you know the the, the technology has advanced so much so with these folks that unless they get vaporized, they will they can pretty much live through anything and live forever. Uh, but a lot of them get vaporized. Uh, but without giving too much away about this book, you can you can win a war by stopping the war, but there still might be bad guys left after the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are trillions of Kiata, right? There are only billions of humanity. And uh, so it, it, it's obvious that uh, there's sort of a... You might reach a stalemate or a brokered, uneasy detente, but the way you would do that is still through border skirmishes, uh, 
Cold War type tactics and things. So I suspect that Deanna and the the, the family is more their uh, their um, their work is still quite uh, unfinished. They're still out there. Um, well, uh, let's shift gears a, a moment and just talk about some. Uh, what what is the coolest science idea you've come up with lately, and um, how are you going to translate that that into a story? Do you think? science idea that I've come up with lately. You know, like just today of all, <laughs> whatever. Well, uh, you know, it's a really interesting question. I, I hadn't really thought about that, but the coolest thing that I've come up with lately is um, um, I've recently written a paper that shows that that, that if you arrange a, uh, a laser cavity a certain way, that theoretically, you could create propellantless propulsion out of it. And I'm in the process of setting up experiments to prove if it's true or not. And if it turns out to be true, then then all you need to move about in space is to have a power source. And it's much more efficient than rockets and much more powerful than anything like an ion drive or anything like that. In fact, uh, analysis suggest that a device like what I'm talking about in the in the paper I wrote, you could use it to get to Mars in a matter of of weeks to days, not years to months. And so that I, I think that's pretty cool. Well, that is pretty cool. Um, is is it does it somehow get around Newton's laws of action and reaction, or is it something else that's going on? Oh, it doesn't. Uh, it, it doesn't, but a lot of people who are skeptical of it, that's the first thing they want to say. But no, it, it, it uses, the, it, it's a, a general relativistic thing and a quantum physics thing that, that occurs that uh, we've seen in nature, but we didn't ever, we've never understood it in an effect called the Casimir effect. And it also happens, it's actually the reason why geckos can walk up a wall. Uh, they use a phenomena, we, we used to call it van der Waals attraction, but we now know it's due to the actual the quantum vacuum energy of the universe, of the building blocks of the universe pushing against itself. And so you're just kind of where I am creating virtual particles with out of the vacuum kind of thing with this. Is that the idea? Well, we don't really know. That's it, a theory. Is that's how this particular type of propulsion works? But what we do know is there have been experiments that show the concept works. But nobody has extrapolated it uh, into a reason for why it works. And myself and a couple other uh, scientists have written some papers that we're, we believe we know why it's working, and we've extrapolated it into higher energy realms that would allow for much higher levels of propulsion. Well, that's cool. So, all right, so it, clearly you've got a spaceship that can take us some places there. Um, what uh, what are you working on at the moment? What's well, uh, fiction-wise? No, but I'm also working on uh, uh, using uh, quantum entanglement to send uh, encrypted in, uh, encrypted signals. Uh, you know, the the uh, Chinese just did an experiment from space where they claimed to have uh, sent, uh, used quantum entanglement to transfer data from space to the ground. And uh, I'm working on the, the, pretty much the same project for uh, to see if we can do that. Hmm. What are uh, what books? Uh, what fictional works are you uh, are you engaged in at the moment? What do we have to look forward to? All right. So let's see. I just wrote the short story. You know, pain is the fuel, uh, which I, I I really loved writing that story, and it's all about Deanna Moore, and it, and, it, and I recommend people go read it before they get uh, Bringers of Hell because it'll give them some more insight into Bringers of Hell. Or you can read it afterwards, either one. I think it works either way. And then uh, I just, I, I think, I'm not 100% certain on this, but I think that Jody Lynn Nye and I are, are finished with the second book um, in uh, the Moon series, uh, the, or the Dr. Bright series, whatever we're calling it, Yeah. Uh, which is a young adult uh, science fiction story that takes place on the moon 
about 75 years from now, and it's about this group of young scientists that that live there and work there on a daily basis, and cool things happen, and they get into adventures kind of like, uh, you know, Scooby-Doo in the game. <clears throat> and uh, I really enjoyed writing that series, or well, those two books. Hopefully we'll do more. Is that the race book, or is that... Uh... What's that? Is that the moon race book where they have the big race around the moon, or is that? Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, the, it's, uh, it's called Moon Tracks, or at least that's what we're calling it right now. And uh, it's about the first uh, race to circumnavigate the moon. Uh, like it's kind of like a an Alaskan Iditarod race or a, a Desert Baja kind of thing. And but this is to go all the way around the moon in, in a moon buggy. And it's it's uh, the kids. They're, I say kids, they're teenagers, uh, and they they join the race, and and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, what about solo projects? Also, uh, I just finished a a story in John Ringo's um, Zombie Apocalypse Universe, mm-hmm. and it's for an anthology that's coming out. I don't know when that's coming out, but I've just finished it, and it's. Uh, it's based on scenes in the sequences of, of events in John's stories that are required in order to get the astronauts that are stuck on the International Space Station back down to the ground. And I, uh, I, do, I tell the story from a NASA perspective and how they managed to keep them alive and figure out how to get them down. And by NASA, I mean about the three people that survived the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Yeah, that's a cool uh, segment actually in the uh, in the Black Tide Rising books when the ISS comes down and they they I guess uh, that was your inspiration. Well, they bring they bring them down in a dra- in a the Dragon capsule that SpaceX is building, and uh, what I do in this story is I start at the beginning of the zombie apocalypse uh, with the with they're at Mission Control. And the astronauts are on the space station, and you start seeing people turning into zombies here and there. Then everything falls, and then they're trying to figure out how to get the astronauts down, and there's about three people left at NASA, and they're all working, trying to stay alive, keep the space station uh, communications going, and figure out how to get them down. And um, uh, so it turned out, I think it turned out to be a pretty fun story. That's cool. That anthology will uh, no doubt be out uh, at some point. Uh probably 2019 so we'll look forward to that um any uh any novels you're working on yeah i'm, I'm about um two chapters in on uh, on a new series called uh ballistic and it's a, a high action science thriller uh it takes place like real you know present day so the uh, tech is all, it's kind of like a, uh, uh, why you'd say it's a science fiction thriller, it's more of a science thriller like Hunt for Red October was. And it's uh, about some bad guys that steal some um, Russian missiles with the nukes on them, reconfigure them and use them to take the space station and hold the high ground and hold the planet at hostage by threatening to drop nukes from orbit if they don't do certain things. And uh, that's that's turning out to be a lot of fun because uh, I see this as uh, die hard in space. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I, yeah, I was excited when you were uh, when you were describing that before. I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, I think your writing style uh, just really fits with that kind of thriller aspect too. I'm, I think readers are going to love it. Well, I certainly hope so. So far, I'm having, uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying writing what I what I've got done on it. Uh, but it's taken a lot of research. Mm-hmm. This one, since it is present day, I've got to get everything just right. And yeah. I've spent about two months just researching Russian nuclear missiles, and um, and and so I've gotten a lot of that right. And, and I'm having to design how how would I retrofit or or, or reverse engineer a Russian missile into a launch vehicle and so all that is taking me a lot of extra work and uh, but it's i think it's going to really pay off in the end yeah 
Well, if there's anybody that can then get the science right, it's going to be Travis Taylor. So um, anything else we want to say about bringers of hell that uh, we may not have hit on? bringers of hell there are so many fun sci-fi things in there and high science concepts philosophies and ideas and there's so much just non-stop action i mean literally from page one to the last page is just non-stop just fun um action in the in the old school uh, you know fighter mecha battles uh Powered armor suit battles. I mean, it's every cool uh, science fiction military conflict that you can imagine thrown into a blender and, and amped up to 11. <laughs> well, I can attest for that. Um, it is, uh, it's nonstop. And it's, it's really good stuff. The book is Bringers of Hell by Travis S. Taylor. And it is out at booksellers everywhere right now. And Travis, thanks so much for joining us again. Hey, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corval's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corval's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Sean paused by the flowers, closed his eyes, took a deep breath of lightly scented air, and sighed. As he understood local custom as practiced upon Langlest, Unette Hartensis had been only slightly forward in her attentions to himself. Had he been local, it would have been his part to be flattered by her favorable notice. In fact, he was flattered by her favorable notice. One was human, after all, and easily able to shield oneself from the warmth of her regard. Paddy, however. Sean sighed again. It had been very apparent that Paddy had felt the caterer's ardor, which rather inescapably brought him to the conclusion that his daughter was indeed a healer. That was, he thought carefully, gratifying. Certainly, if Patty were to come into possession of her gifts during the reception, that might be awkward. However, he did not think she would do so. He thought, had thought, since their flight down from the passage just this afternoon, when Patty Yos Gallen who had been accustomed to thrill at the sight of a piloting board, sat her station with great calmness, competency, and no delight whatsoever. That there was more to this situation of gifts and stone and walls than met even a healer's eye. She might have been sitting a sim, save that her reaction time was appropriate to the demands of maneuvering the shuttle in real time and space. 
He had expected excitement, exhilaration, perhaps a moment or two of terror. All the sorts of things likely to be experienced by a young pilot still learning her wings. And all he had felt from her, beyond an early frisson of pleased anticipation, had been the concentration appropriate to a working pilot, and grit, sand, and stone. He had not dared probe too deeply and risk breaking the pilot's concentration. He dared not probe too deeply now, lest he create the very circumstance he wished to avoid. Stone. Walls, Lena had said, and he too had glimpsed something structured and dire. Plainly, Patty had been some time at this work, and doubting the wisdom of creating such an edifice as he did, most stringently, he could not help but trust that it would hold. He knew Patty Yosgalen, the meticulous care she brought to her studies and her work. Whatever had motivated her to create such a thing, he did not doubt that it had been done with nothing less than thoroughness. That, of course, begged the question of how they, the elder healers, ought most wisely to proceed in the case. But that question was for after the reception, when they were alone in their rooms and free from the distractions of lusty caterers. It occurred to him then that Patty had not yet had her bed lessons, which would ordinarily be an easily corrected oversight, as Lena was fully capable as a teacher. However, this structure, this environment that Patty had created for herself until they knew what the child had done precisely. A clock chimed suddenly, very close by. Sean took another deep, flower-scented breath, ran a healer's relaxation exercise, and opened his eyes. Unet Hartensis was moving toward the doors. He turned and found Patty coming toward him, looking perhaps a little wan. Is all well, Trader Yosgalen? he murmured. That earned him a small smile. I believe so, Master Trader, but a word in your ear. She leaned forward, and he bent slightly, giving her his literal as well as his metaphorical ear. Avoid the blue juice at all costs, she whispered. It is dreadful. Tolly woke all at once and wished he hadn't. His head felt like somebody had taken the business side of an axe to it, and his mouth tasted foul. For a moment, he just lay there, on a surface giving enough to possibly be his bunk, too craven to open up his eyes. Tolly Jones, a voice spoke from overhead, a soft voice, if not particularly gentle, and lately very familiar to him. Admiral, he said. Yes, I am pleased that you have regained consciousness. Inky predicted that you would do so at approximately this hour. She asked me to present this message to you immediately. There was a slight, but not too slight, pause before Inky's voice came through the ceiling speaker. My most profound apologies, mentor. It is a vile potion, but effective. Analgesics will tame the headache, and high sea juice will make the mouth taste sweeter. Analgesics and high sea, was it? He opened his eyes to the merest slits and found that the dim light of his cabin at least made the headache no worse. Where is Inky? he asked the admiral. Aboard Ahab Azaeus. That was a surprise. Why had the woman drugged him if she was... No, wait. You're not thinking, Tolly Jones. Think. Where is Ahab Azaeus? He asked. Now breaking dock, the admiral answered. Get Inky on calm for me, 
I am sorry not to be able to accommodate your request, Tolly, the admiral said. That sent a cold chill down a man's back. Inky'd set a mandate, had she? Well, all right. He doubted he had much civil to say to Inky now that he thought about it. Tolly swung his legs over the edge of his bunk and waited for his head to stop spinning. Analgesics and juice are on the table, the admiral said. Please, Tolly, care for yourself. Well, this was a touching concern and a little out of character for the admiral. He wondered briefly what else Inky had been tampering with and put the thought aside for more immediate concerns. Admiral, please get Tokel on calm for me. I am sorry, Tolly. Tokel is not available to calm. His stomach hurt. He reached for the little bottle of pills, threw three down his throat, and followed them with a tangy swallow of high sea. Please get Hazenthal on calm. Hazenthal is not currently available to calm, pilot. I am sorry. Worse and worse. He took another swig of juice, decided he was good to go, and got up on his feet, pleased not to wobble. Please open the hatch, he said. I'm going on dock. I regret that is not possible. We are in transit toward the jump point. Tolly sat back down on his bunk, cold, all the way through. Destination, he asked, but he thought he knew the answer to that. The Liar Institute office on Nostrilia. Raw fear hit him. He took a breath and pushed the fear aside. Return to Jemiatha Station. Jemiatha Station will not allow me to dock, Tolly. You know this. Well, at least he should have suspected it, given the tenor of their last communication with Stu. Inky left a second message for you. However, she said that you must not hear it until you had showered, eaten, and, quote, felt human again, unquote. He closed his eyes, opened them, stood. All right, then, he said flatly, and headed for the fresher. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Bain intern Charlie Smith, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a sunset tinted with blood orange rocket trails and sky blue pink jump ship vacuum impactions, plus the thanks and praise of an implacably starbound peoples to Travis S. Taylor, author of Bringers of Hell. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 